you can basically go from head to toe and you can say that there is a huge impact of having chronically high blood sugar and or insulin resistance in these areas. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Lauren tuning in from Maryland, joined by my sister, or we're a little bit twins today. Hello. Oh, Renee. hi. I didn't know it was a white day. What's happening? Mm, apparently it's very <laughs> hot here. So <laughs> uh, it's going to be like 112 today. So you tell oh, me about oh, how. Oh. <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> I'll be staying inside. Today. Ah! Yeah, that's rough. Oh, okay. Just sauna, just standing. I don't have to use my sauna today. I'm saving money. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> Free biohacks for all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Cool. All right. We did a little podcast swap with our friend, Danielle Hamilton. We're really excited to bring her on today. She is a blood sugar specialist and you know, we love this topic. I especially love it. And she's just a wealth of information about blood sugar dysregulation being at the root cause of chronic disease. And she just explains it in a very fascinating, yet clear, simple, approachable way, which I just love and adore. I, we had such a great time with her. Yeah. She's always fun to chat with. And I've heard her story a couple of times about her health journey. And every time I hear it, I'm just like blown away with all of the steps that she went through to get to her point of optimal health, I would say. I would say, listen to her story. And I think it'll give you inspiration to, to never give up if you're having mm. a health issue. Like there's always something else that you could be missing. Anyways, so inspiring yeah. to hear that. And yeah, she's such an expert on blood sugar and I mean, PCOS digestion. I could just listen to her talk all day about all these amazing topics. And I think everyone's going to love this episode and learn a ton from her. Yes. And hopefully if you haven't already be motivated to get a CGM continuous glucose monitor, I think that's something that everyone should experience at least once in their life. Not something you have to be on forever, but, um, just really, 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 really powerful experimentation to do for your health. So, all right, here's a little more about Danny. Danielle Hamilton is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and restorative wellness practitioner who specializes in blood sugar regulation and digestion. She became interested in blood sugar issues when she learned that insulin resistance was at the root of her PCOS. She was able to reverse her PCOS, cystic acne, PMS, and weight loss resistance by reversing insulin resistance. Her mission is to help others uncover their blood sugar and insulin issues, as most people don't know the early signs, as well as help them optimize digestion for low-carb diets. Danny promotes a holistic approach to reversing insulin resistance, which goes beyond just changing macros. She is the host of the Unlock the Sugar Shackles podcast and the creator of the Blood Sugar Mastery Program. Yeah, Danny's doing some amazing work. And I will just add, please go follow her on Instagram. Her posts are awesome, like very educational, very inspirational, fun to watch and learn from her. So definitely check her out over there. Yeah. All right. Let's start our convo. Welcome, Danny, to the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to see you. (laughs) Great to see you. Yeah. So you're here to talk about one of my favorite topics and and possibly one of the most important topics when it comes to health and wellness. It's insane how prevalent this is. And I think most people don't even know about it. So blood sugar dysregulation as an umbrella, but the many implications it has when it comes to like looking at root cause of chronic disease. And I know you focus a lot on PCOS, on reactive hypoglycemia. You have many talents in this arena, but those are some highlights we're going to cover today. And they're just not getting enough attention in mainstream nutrition, the media. I don't even know why it would be there in the first place because um, that stuff is, is quite confusing and often not getting to the root. So 
we would love to just start out with your story and how did you discover that blood sugar issues were at the root of your personal health challenges? Yeah. So that's a a great place to start with blood sugar, because I feel like my story is representative of a lot of people who come to find out that they have blood sugar issues. So in childhood, I was a kid that grew up in a totally different household than yours. Standard American diet, lots of uh, processed breakfast foods was like my jam. I Any sort of cereal and Eggo waffles and oatmeal, instant oatmeal, of course. And I would go to a barbecue and eat a bun with ketchup on it, but not the burger. And so I would say that I had a sweet tooth and not surprisingly, I had a lot of standard American illnesses that went along with my diet. And so I had lots of colds and strep throat and ear infection and that ear infections. And that meant tons of rounds of antibiotics. I used to just ask my mom, like, can I get the pink stuff, which was amoxicillin? And I would just drink that stuff. I loved it. And, and she's like, no, you can't have that. You're not sick right now. That's how common it was in my house. It was so common for me to have that many antibiotics. I felt like I was always sick and it was nothing severe, but I had these issues as a kid and then they of course sort of evolved with me as I grew up. And so I had strep throat six times my senior year of high school. They removed my tonsils. It was really rough. And the tonsils are part of your immune system and they, you know, flag invaders. So not surprisingly the next year when I went to college, I developed really bad seasonal allergies. And so I was told that it was just genetics or bad luck. You know, they don't really have answers for you when you ask them, why do I have this? And all this time I really struggled my whole life. I kind of struggled with my weight. I was always like just on that border of like being overweight slash, you know, a few pounds to lose. I was never skinny and as I wanted to be, and I struggled a lot with my skin. I had a lot of acne And that sort of evolved and it became more cyclical, but I always struggled with acne and I also had antibiotics for that, of course, as well. So then I moved to Miami, Florida from New York, tell us all this time a New Yorker moves to Florida, you know, and, (laughs) and I developed my allergies got so much worse because then the season for allergies was all year round. And I also developed asthma. And so I was allergic to so many things. I did allergy testing. They even found out I was allergic to palm trees. I was like, this is like a sick. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. How is that possible? Yeah, I know, really. Because it's a tree, right? Oh. So one of the tree pollens that I was you know, oh, allergic terrible. to was palm trees. It was crazy. So I remember just being taking so many allergy medications. I was on singular and I was on multiple inhalers and multiple anti, uh, anti allergy medications. And this was my early twenties. I was like, what the heck is going to happen to me when I'm older? And I was also struggling with chronic sinus infections, other types of infections, like you name it. And I was in my early twenties and I was working at a nursing home at the time as this, as a speech pathologist. And I was looking at my clients, you know, doing all these chart reviews. I was looking at all their diagnoses and all their medications. And I'm like, wow, if I continue doing what I'm doing, I am right on track to be where they're at maybe decades sooner because I was in my early twenties. Like it was just so wild that all this stuff was happening to me. So somehow I heard from a coworker about this book called the paleo solution by Rob Wolf. And she was saying something about a caveman and something about how we used to eat. And it just kind of like piqued my interest. I got hold of the book. I tore through it and wanted to shout the information from a rooftop. I was like, oh my goodness, we've been lied to. I felt so angry because all this time I was just, you know, my mom was just feeding me what the government was saying in the eighties and nineties, like eat the food pyramid. I was eating the food pyramid. I was having heart healthy. And I say this in quotes, uh, you know, canola oil, and I was having just lean chicken breast and, you know, heart healthy oatmeal and Cheerios. And I was super sick. I was doing everything I was told and I was getting really sick. So that anger kind of fueled this, this passion inside of me to just keep digging deeper. And then it just sort of flipped everything I knew on its head. It was like, don't avoid fat, have fat, you know, have the red meat, don't have the chicken breast and, and, you know, don't avoid salt, have salt, don't eat things from a package, eat real food. So that was the message that I got from Rob Wolf's book. I started incorporating that. 
And wouldn't you know, all my allergies went away, all my asthma went away. I never had to take another allergy shot. I never had to do any of those medications again, never got another sinus infection. And I was just on cloud nine. I was like, everyone needs to know this. And so then I had a really stressful year. I moved back to New York and I started to gain weight. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. Then I started to have really bad acne again, like sorry, I'm in a friend's house and their cat's going nuts. Um, I was in a, (laughs) I was getting really bad acne. I was, um, gaining weight and then I lost my menstrual cycle. I was like, something's happening here. So I knew the stress was a component, but I was like, this diet just healed me. So what is happening here? I, I couldn't figure it out. So I was, I found out online that I had the the symptoms of PCOS. So that was the missing periods, the acne, uh, the weight gain. And for some women, they also get hair loss from the top of their head and also facial hair. And I didn't, luckily didn't get those hair symptoms, but I had all the rest of them. And so I was trying to figure out what was at the root of my PCOS. And so I looked on online and they said, well, don't have gluten, don't have dairy, don't have refined sugar. And I was like, oh, check, check, check. I'm doing all those things because I'm eating a paleo diet. So this is perfect. So I just paleoed harder because I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, it looks like I'm already doing everything right. So I might as well keep doing this. So obviously because nothing changed, nothing changed. And so I continued to struggle and it wasn't for several years. I did end up taking, you know, medications. I took metformin. It should have clued me in like, oh, there's a blood sugar component, but I didn't know what metformin was. So I didn't know I took spironolactone and whatever I got off those. And I ended up feeling a lot better, but I was just maintaining nothing was really, uh, I didn't feel like I had recovered. I was just sort of at this plateau and still questioning, but still digging into my health all this time, listening to podcasts, reading books and, and, you know, consuming content. And I knew a ton about nutrition, but I just didn't know what was wrong with me until one day I heard a podcast and the speaker said, PCOS is the diabetes of the ovaries. And I nearly drove my car off the road because I was like, Oh my, what, what do you mean? Diabetes doesn't have to do with blood sugar. And I was like, okay, what do I know about blood sugar? What, and what do I know about diabetes? I was like, uh, something about amputations. Cause a lot of my patients had amputation. I knew nothing about this and I was deep into holistic health. And so if I knew that little about blood sugar, about insulin resistance, and it was plaguing me. Like, what does the general public know? You know, they, there's all this oh, quote unquote diabetes awareness. We're aware of it, but we don't know anything about it. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know. I mean, and that's the end of the spectrum of, of blood sugar issues. So what is happening at the beginning of the spectrum? And as those things are getting worse, it's just not known. So finally I heard that and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to look into this. So I realized looking back, I said, okay, what are blood sugar symptoms and which ones do I have? So I realized that I was a person who, when I woke up, I'd be already like shaky, needed to get something to eat. When I had coffee, I would also get shaky and I thought it was from the caffeine, but later on I tested my blood sugar and it was 60. When I went to the doctor for fasting blood work during this PCOS time, my blood sugar was 60. Every single time I went, I felt like I was going to pass out. I was lightheaded. I was dizzy. No one said anything. No one even circled it on the blood work form. Like, Hey, this is out of range. This is something, you know, we want to keep an eye on. They're like, great. It's under a hundred. No problem. So I didn't realize that my symptom was reactive, was more of the hypoglycemic. I didn't have high blood sugar. I had the low blood sugar symptoms, which is, you know, just another manifestation of insulin resistance. This is how it was showing up in me. So I was also a person who was always thinking about food, was grazing all day, had to snack to kind of keep my energy up and to sort of prevent these symptoms of feeling these this low blood sugar, which I didn't know what that was. I just knew that if I was going out to eat, I would eat before I went out to eat. And I was like, why do I do this? I just, I couldn't stop myself. I had a granola bar in my purse all the time. And then once I did paleo, it was a Lara bar. So I was always, you know, carrying food with me wherever I went. And all of those are symptoms of 
blood sugar dysregulation. I also had terrible PMS symptoms. So it was starting to impact my, obviously my female hormones. I had the PCOS, PMS. I also had PMDD, anything with a P I apparently had. (laughs) And, and I was really struggling with all those things and didn't realize that those were all reversible. Those are all things that can go away and get better when you dial in your blood sugar. So I eventually did a healthy ketogenic diet. So I switched, I took my paleo plate, took off the starchy carbs, which were always there or the fruit or the, you know, plantain chips, or you know, all those, I, I was definitely heavily leaning into those foods when I was paleo. So I took those away. I added more fats and, you know, I kept all the vegetables and the meats and that just switched my foods into a ketogenic ratios. I dabbled with some fasting and PCOS went away. (laughs) It was amazing. So I never had any symptoms anymore. Never got another pimple. Um, my weight is under control and I, yeah, my menstrual cycle is regular. I never know when my period's coming. Only an app tells me on the phone because I don't get PMS symptoms anymore. I don't have PMDD. I don't break up with my significant other right before my cycle comes like I used to. So that's great. So a lot of wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of wins. Man, your, your story is just incredible. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure a lot of people listening can resonate with parts of that story or maybe the whole thing. I think, you know, we've all had such crazy experiences, especially dealing with some traditional medicine maybe pieces where they miss some parts of the puzzle. We'll leave it at that. And it's actually interesting what you said about your fasting glucose at 65, 60, I think you said 60. Yeah. So mine used to always be really low too. Cause I used to have a lot of that hypoglycemia issues and you're right. It never got flagged, which is interesting. Cause it could be 50 or it could be 99. And like, and none of that gets flagged when we know both of those are a major issue, but as soon as it hits a hundred, it gets the red circle. And my opinion on that is because unless it's super hypoglycemic where you're below 50, because they'll, the doctors are trained to be like, oh, it's under 50. So that might be a problem because you might be feeling hypoglycemic, but they don't realize that in that range, anyone could be feeling hypoglycemic at any of those numbers. But then once you get to a hundred, you can start giving medication, right? You can start giving metformin or maybe it's 126 yeah. or, or something. So they really, the doctors, the way they're trained, traditional doctors don't have tools and don't have anything to tell you when it's mm-hmm. at these lower ranges. So they tell you, oh, your, you know, your blood sugar is at 98. It's, it's kind of creeping up, but their advice, what they tell my clients at their appointments, they say, let's just watch it. I mean, imagine if someone mm. came to either of you and you said, let's just, let's just watch it. <laughs> like what? <laughs> There's so much we can do. There's let's so watch much it we keep can going do. up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So then so yeah. did you, were you testing your blood sugar at all when you made that switch from paleo to keto or you were yes. just kind of, yeah, okay. I did start testing my blood sugar and ketones then. And it was tending on that low side. And I made the mistake of starting keto with a three-day water fast, which obviously didn't go super well because I was already hypoglycemic. I felt like I was uh, drugged the whole time and I was like moving through mud because my electrolytes were off. So I was, it was rough. So do not do that. <laughs> do not recommend. Yeah. That's a good PSA right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how did you start testing your blood sugar? Were you doing a finger prick immediately or when did you get introduced to a CGM, which is still so, pretty new for some people? Yeah. The CGM came way later. I was doing the finger prick and I would test it before I ate. I would test it fasting. And then I would test it every, let's say 20 to 30 minutes after the meal to really capture that spike. So what I see a lot of people do is they'll test their blood sugar before they eat. And then they test two hours after, and they're just missing that so much information about what's happening. So it could have spiked up to 200 and been plummeting back down And it's, let's say you started at 80 and then it spiked up to 200 is plummeting back down, hits 80 two hours later. You're like, oh, I'm perfect. That's not perfect. We need to know what's happening between, or it could have been, you know, a flat line. It could have gone low afterwards. So there's so much to know. So if you are just testing two hours later, it's something that you definitely want to test more often because what I tell my clients to do is if you don't have a CGM, 
test every 20 minutes. And it's almost as good as the CG. I mean, you can do every 15 minutes if you want, and then just plot those points so you can capture the curve, as I call it, and really see what the blood sugar is doing after the meal to see if it's spiking up really high, if it's taking a long time to come down, things like that. Yeah, it tends to be a lot of work, but I mean, that's the tool that we have right now. And so why not do it to further the investigation? I would love to talk about insulin because we have like a lot of doctors test fasting glucose, like you experienced, but that snapshot in time doesn't tell us a lot. And it also is not super predictive. Whereas insulin, we can see years in advance maybe. So what is the connection there? Can you explain how you look at insulin with your clients? Yeah. Do you want me to talk about how insulin works or do you feel like your people know that? Sure. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when we eat carbohydrates and also protein, the sugar from that digests and it goes into our blood and the body likes to have a very tight range of glucose in the blood at all times, which is just about a teaspoon. And if it strays from that, the body will have different measures to make sure it stays in that happy range. So if we eat, uh, carbohydrates, the glucose goes into our blood and we get a signal uh, from our pancreas, uh, the pancreas senses this and will put out insulin, which is a hormone. And the insulin's job is to take the glucose and put it into the cells of the body. So it could be used. So it will put it in the liver. It will put uh, about 80% of it in our muscles and it, the rest, it will store away, um, as basically as body fat. So what the insulin is doing is it's escorting the sugar into the cells of the body so it can be used for energy. But what happens over time when we eat a standard American diet, if we're snacking all the time, and even if we're trying to be healthy, like that, what I call the conscious standard American diet. So this is like whole wheat bread and quinoa and lots of, you know, smoothies and juices you're eating a really, really, really high glycemic diet and you're eating all the time because you're not eating these satiating foods. And so by accident, you're sort of spiking your blood sugar all the time, therefore spiking your insulin. And insulin takes a lot longer to come down all the way than blood sugar does. So this chronic elevation of insulin will leave the levels slowly creeping up in the blood. So over time, we just get these higher and higher levels of insulin. And so insulin... Uh, when it gets high in the blood, it automatically starts to create some resistance. So that's like the resistance to the insulin. It's like the, the cells aren't hearing the message. So like you were just here. I don't, I'm not listening to you. You're like the boy who cried wolf. So, or it's the same thing. Like we put a shirt on that has an itchy tag and just within a few seconds or minutes, it, we, we stop feeling it. So the body develops resistance to that signal really, really quickly. So it starts to not respond to the insulin. So the, the sugar, the glucose can't get out of the blood and go into the cells where it's needed. So with insulin resistance, there's always high insulin levels and then always trouble using the insulin. So these two things happen. They're like two sides of the same coin. They can't happen without each other. So what can be happening is that we can, our body can be producing quite a bit of insulin because it knows that we're eating a lot of sugar over time and it's keeping our blood sugar in a great level. But now we have double, triple, quadruple the amount of insulin needed to do the same job as the normal insulin. So we can have these creeping up levels of insulin and our blood sugar might be perfect. And so this is something that I've also experienced and something that I'm experimenting with because my blood sugar is perfect on a graph, but my insulin's a little bit elevated. So that's something that can be happening. You can go to the the doctor and you can ask them, Hey, can I get my fasting insulin checked? And usually their answer is no, which is wild. It's like, they won't even test it. I have so many people telling me their doctors are flat out refusing to test their insulin. And to me, the, again, the reason is they're not trained in how to interpret it. So most Mm -hmm. doctors will use the fasting insulin test as a way to look at like if they have an insulinoma or something, some sort of insulin producing tumor, or if, you know, type type one diabetes, they're looking for like, oh, there, you know, there's no fasting insulin or it's just one, or it's very minimal. So they're not really trained to look when it comes to people who have just these beginning levels of dysfunction. That is not what mainstream medicine is trained or looking for. They are looking for the presence of disease. So it's kind of like 
for them, it's black or white. So you get a lot of gaslighting from doctors. It's like, oh, I have all these symptoms. And they're like, well, it's not your blood sugar because your blood sugar is perfect because it's 97. You know, it's, it's like, well, it's not perfect. And you know, what's your insulin doing? Is your insulin really high? So the ranges for insulin are not as settled upon as much as blood sugar, which is also not super settled upon. We have some good research. It's it's pretty good. Um, There are some variations, but with insulin, it's kind of even worse. So I get my numbers from Ben Bickman, who is like the God of insulin. And he says (laughs) that between two and five is ideal, but then you have to say, well, what's the blood sugar doing? Is the blood sugar super, super elevated as in type two diabetes and your blood sugar's 200 and your insulin's only two to five, then that's probably not enough insulin. So that might mean that your pancreas is sort of giving out. So if we see high blood sugar, we'd also expect to see high insulin. So if it isn't, it could be that type two where they're insulin dependent or that they're starting to like need insulin because their, their body is, their pancreas is like tapping out, or it could be a type one situation, but generally we'll see, um, we want to see those lower ranges for insulin along with those lower blood sugar numbers. So for all the biohacking community, you know, if your, your blood sugar is pretty good and your insulin is starting to creep up a little bit, you know, that you just have excess insulin. That's doing the job of keeping its blood sugar, keeping your blood sugar in its place. Does that make sense? Mm. Oh yeah. I think there's so much nuance and that is sort of why doctors will say, let's just watch it because it is dynamic in that way. And I think more data will, will clarify the picture of course, but yeah. yeah, again, just so many nuances there. And, and I've heard many schools of thought that think insulin should be two to three, which is tough in this environment and with yeah. the standard mm-hmm. American diet, like that doesn't, that does not happen very often. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Goals. Yeah. So I'm so fascinated by the idea of insulin resistance being at the root of so many things. Like you know, Alzheimer's is now type three diabetes. You you said PCOS is diabetes of the ovaries. Um, what else are you seeing? Like what areas of the body are being affected by this and what's to come? What are going to be the new names in the next? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, that's a great question. And I heard someone say on a podcast recently that that metabolic syndrome, we know what metabolic syndrome is, right. Used to be called, called insulin resistance syndrome. So I want to start bringing that back because if you frame it like that, like people are like, what is metabolic syndrome? You know, you guys probably know what it is. Maybe your some of your listeners to do, but the average person on the street, I feel like you say the word metabolism and everyone's confused. You say metabolism and people think it's fast or slow. And that's why you're fat or thin. That's I think yeah. the, yeah. what people know about a metabolism. And mm-hmm. so when we say insulin resistance syndrome and they show up and they have high blood sugar, they have cardiovascular issues like hypertension. They have, you know, it's like, oh, that's because of the insulin. Okay. Now I'm getting it right. So it's starting to paint that picture. So when it comes to blood sugar issues and insulin resistance, which go hand in hand, there is a receptor on every cell of the body for insulin. So it affects every single cell organ and process in the body. So you can basically go from head to toe and say, start looking at all the different areas of the body that are every single organ or, you know, part of your body, like your skin or your, your mouth or your organs. And you can say that there is a huge impact of having chronically high blood sugar and or insulin resistance in these areas. So the brain is one of the first organs to be impacted by our inability to burn fat. And that would be from insulin resistance. So, um, insulin blocks our body's ability to burn stored body fat, which is a huge problem if you want to lose weight, right? So that's a big deal, but also the body uses that stored body fat as energy, not only to lose weight, but also to power it through between meals and overnight when you're sleeping. So the body shouldn't be super dependent on burning only glucose as fuel. We should have that metabolic flexibility where we're able to burn both glucose and fat for fuel. So when the brain can't burn 
fat for fuel, it's going to be dependent on carbohydrates. And we're going to get a lot of those issues. And this comes from having insulin resistance and high insulin levels. And so we'll start to see a lot of neurological symptoms. So we'll see dizziness, shakiness, we'll see anxiety, mood issues, irritability, feeling hangry, quote unquote. These are all signs of even early insulin resistance and early impairment with blood sugar dysregulation. We start to see brain fog. We'll see early cognitive issues. And then as the insulin resistance worsens, we'll start to see those issues like dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And of course we know that that seizures and those types of disorders have a real strong link to the glucose metabolism in the brain. And that's why a ketogenic diet is recommended for a lot of neurological issues. Um, there's, you know, I just saw a bunch of people post in their stories, a big, uh, research study came out today that a ketogenic diet has, is really, really helpful for reversing depression. I mean, you see this every day, there's new studies coming out that it's great for mental health issues. And so the brain is really, really impacted by our ability to burn fat for fuel. And that is dependent on our, you know, insulin status. So when we have those insulin issues, again, it's going to, you can go down the body macular degeneration, you get in the eyes. That's the leading cause of blindness in people in, in general. And that usually comes with people who have type two diabetes. We see issues with the mouth. We know that sugar causes tooth decay, even the ears. So tinnitus, or that's how I learned to say it in speech therapy school. Some people call it tinnitus on um, that ringing of the ears that is caused by insulin resistance. So it's, it's just crazy. There's a lot of things with the ear because it's insulin is a growth hormone. So it, it impacts thing, you know, these organs differently. And then you can keep going down the body. Of course, the heart, we see insulin resistance is the leading cause of having high blood pressure and heart disease. And we see in the stomach and the GI tract, the overgrowth of bad bacteria, it also insulin resistance impacts the body's ability to use bile and the gallbladder function. We see it obviously impacting the liver. We see fatty liver associated with high insulin and we see adrenal dysfunction because the blood sugar is going up and down and that really impacts the adrenal glands. And so we get hormonal dysfunction and then the reproductive uh, organs. And so that's going to be, you know, PCOS, which is caused for the most part by insulin resistance is the leading cause of infertility and also high in insulin in men can also cause infertility in men. It's not just in women. So you can just go down the line and your body yeah. is impacted. And that's another reason why it's so hard to know what blood sugar issues are causing. It's because it can impact every organ. And it seems like, oh, well, I have migraines, you know, headaches and migraines is another one. It's like, I have migraines, I have PMS, I have PCOS, and I have a little bit of high blood pressure those seem unrelated, right? They seem random. And when you put them together, they're just not there. That's the common thread that's behind all of them. Yeah. It's really never ending. The cat is so I love cute. the cat. <laughs> it's we actually really bad news and really good news. Like, oh my oh, gosh. He's so cute. I mean, there's two cats. There's two. It's my friend's cats. Yeah. <laughs> there's construction going on at my house. So they're wanting to play right now because they think their their aunt is here. <laughs> oh, sweet. <gasps> so sweet. <laughs> Go ahead, Renee. Yeah, I just gonna say like that's good bad news and good news. Like it's one thing. Right. right. Go ahead, Renee. Right. You can look at it either way. Hey, biohackers, you may have noticed that there are a ton of new supplement brands popping up every week. But unfortunately, there are a lot of junk supplements out there. They're using poor quality ingredients, and sometimes the label doesn't even match what's actually in the bottle. I know, it's so crazy. This is why Lauren and I are constantly searching for new brands and looking for the best ones so we can bring them to you all. And one of the brands that we truly love and trust is Paleo Valley. I won't run through all of their amazing products right now, but I will tell you about a couple of my favorites, which include their greens powder. It's the only one on the market I will even consume anymore because it contains organic greens and superfoods, plus it's gluten-free, soy-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and the real game changer here is that they don't use any cereal grasses like wheatgrass or fillers, which is really extremely common in greens powders today and can be problematic for a lot of people. 
They have other amazing supplements like their apple cider vinegar complex, which is great because it's in capsule form. So you don't have to drink the nasty apple cider vinegar that people don't love so much. And you get all the benefits for digestion, detoxification, blood sugar control. And then another favorite is their grass-fed organ complex. So you know we talk a lot about eating organ meats on the show because they're very nutrient-dense, but a lot of people don't want to spend the time to cook that and don't love the flavor of it. So they have put it in capsule form, taking away all of our excuses about organ meats. And they also have one other snack, the superfood bars. If you ever need something that's healthy, on-the-go, this is a really nutrient-dense, clean product that we love as well. And everything tastes delicious, plus they're 100% grass-fed beef sticks. I promise you, once you try these, you will never want to go buy just like a random beef stick at the store, whether it's at the gas station or Whole Foods, wherever. These are so delicious, and they're very, very clean, and we love them so much. So our friends at Paleo Valley were kind enough to give all of our listeners 15% off, and you don't even need a coupon code at checkout. All you have to do is use the link that's in the show notes for today's episode. I will also link to the episode where we had Autumn Smith from Paleo Valley on the show. That was earlier in 2022. So you can learn more about Autumn and her mission, which is just so beautiful and amazing. And we love the work that they're doing. So check out the show notes for today's episode. We'll put all the links in there and let's get back to the show. I'm curious, circling back to PCOS is I'm seeing a rise in this with clients and I don't know, is it getting diagnosed more often or is it on the rise because of all the insulin resistance? So that's kind of part one of my question is, what's going on there, but also for someone that was just diagnosed, where would you recommend they start? Do they get a CGM? Like what's step one? Yeah. So I think that there's a combination of increasing insulin resistance. I mean, the, if you look at the causes of insulin resistance, it's going to be high, high insulin. And that is going to be from too many carbohydrates and also vegetable oils, which are everywhere, you know, like you guys are probably trying to dodge vegetable oils. You go to Whole Foods and it's like, you you can't get anything. You have to read every single label. So if you're not paying attention, you're getting tons of vegetable oils. If you're just eating out, you're getting tons of vegetable oils. And so this is a huge problem. And just how often people are eating. I mean, we're still, are we in a pandemic? Not here in Florida, maybe not in Texas, but like (laughs) there's pandemic-ish stuff happening. The the state of the world is crazy. We're all stress eating. You know, we're in our pantry. It's like, why am I even here? So we're overeating. We're eating these vegetable oils. And then there's chronic stress. That's another cause of insulin resistance. And so we have all these things combined. And then perhaps, you know, these tons of endocrine disruptors all over the place. So that can be playing a role as well. And then people are just more aware because I think because it's more accessible, people are finding, you know, sharing posts on social media and it's like, oh, this sounds like me. What? I have PCOS. Oh my goodness. I must have PCOS. So I see it happening a lot. And to me, it's how insulin resistance manifests in some people. I know that there are some people who don't have insulin resistance. It comes from more of an adrenal inflammation, inflammatory component, and inflammation is the other cause of insulin resistance. So if you think about the inflammation, the stress, and just the rise of insulin from the foods that we're eating, (laughs) yeah, the world, I mean, it's really setting everybody up to have this issue. And so it's showing up in a big way for a lot of people. And the other thing is, I think that the, it, it is sort of like a blanket term. It's like, okay, your, your periods are regular. The, the diagnostic criteria for it is like, you might have some cysts on your ovaries and you need to have issues with your period being irregular. And then maybe one other symptom of like weight gain, a lot of people might have that, you know? And so it's, the diagnostic criteria that some of these doctors are using, there's multiple different ways to do it, but most often they use that sort of criteria. And a lot of people are just falling into that category, but I don't think it's bad if we're sort of over-diagnosing it. I think that it's very underdiagnosed still. And I think that insulin resistance is very much underdiagnosed. And I think that the very first thing that we want to do is start impacting our blood sugar. We want to reduce the inflammation that we have. So change over your foods to whole foods, get rid of the processed foods. We want to change things in our environment. We don't want, you know, 
fabric softeners and Febreze and candles and all these fragrances and hair products. So we want to start changing over those personal care products to lower that inflammation. Then we want to look at our sleep because that's a huge source of stress and can cause insulin resistance the next day, even if, if we're not sleeping enough. And then we want to look at our diet. So in addition to changing over the foods to being real foods, as opposed to process, we want to start lowering those carbohydrates and adding some healthy fats to help stabilize the blood sugar and making sure that we're getting a good amount of protein at the beginning, depending on where you're at, if you're hypoglycemic, you'll probably need to really lower the protein at first until your blood sugar is really able to be stabilized. And you want to go really heavy on the fats if you're hypoglycemic. And then slowly after you get better and after you get more stable, we want to start pulling that protein up because the traditional ketogenic ratios are not enough protein, especially for women. So some people need to do that for, uh, you know, if they have seizures and things like that, need to stay in that really high level of, of ketosis, but ketones are not correlated with weight loss. And so we want to remember not to chase ketones. We just want our body burning fat for fuel. And we don't want to be adding too much that we're continuing to store it. But at the beginning, and this might be for many months for many people, we want to really focus on really fatty proteins to get the fat with the protein. If you fall into that hypoglycemic camp, add fats to the food and taper down those carbs slowly so your blood sugar stays stable. That's really how you address the hypoglycemia and, um, yeah. And then start slowly bringing that protein back up so you can build muscle, which is the biggest sink for insulin and glucose, which is super, super important. Mm. Yeah. All great tips. Where to start. Thank you for that. Sure. Yeah. The keto conversation is so interesting. I think it's really powerful, but of course it's personalized in so many ways, especially for cycling women. And then there's like the cultural conditioning around, you know, if you grew up when we did fat is bad. So one, it's getting people comfortable with the idea of experimenting, but then we have this other issue of maybe you're not really good at digesting, metabolizing fats. What do we do in that case? Yeah. This is so many people who come to me. They're like, Danny, I hear your message. My blood sugar is crashing. I know I need to add in the fats or I add in the fats and all of a sudden my urge to snack goes away. I can go longer between meals. And they're like, this is amazing. Like fat is my friend. This is, this is great. And they <laughs> finally embrace it. And they're like, but I haven't gone to the bathroom all week or, but it just, you know, shoots right out of me <laughs> the second I eat it. So this is a problem I see all the time. And so, like I mentioned earlier, if you do have insulin resistance, you are going to have an issue with your fat digestion. The other sort of prerequisites for having issues with your fat digestion and your bile flow are if you've ever eaten a low fat diet. So anyone in the eighties and nineties, we've eaten a low fat diet, or if you're probably a woman and are afraid to eat fat and it happens with people who have gone on a vegan or vegetarian diet. So plant-based people are, their digestive function is just going to lower because they're not eating a lot of proteins and fats. So that's going to impact it. And then anyone who's eaten a standard American diet with the, you know, these seed oils that we're eating, that's going to cause a lot of issue with the bile. So bile is this substance I like to think about like dish soap. And so it gets recycled in the body and we want to have a big, big, big squirt of dish soap when we eat a fatty meal. So think about after Thanksgiving, you have a sink full of greasy dishes. If you only had a few drops of soap, you're going to have a lot of greasy pans left, right? You can't emulsify that fat. So the same thing is happening when we're eating a meal. We need to have that big squeeze of dish soap to wash the whole sink, right? So if you're eating throughout the day, that's another thing that's going to reduce how much bile you get at a big meal. So that's another reason. There's so many reasons to not snack between meals. And we've been taught the opposite for the blood sugar, but also for digestion to give your gut a break, but also for the bile, because we want that bile to be building up in the gallbladder between meals. It's made in the liver and it's held in the gallbladder. So we really want 
that to that process to be happening. We also need to think about the body only digests when we're in a parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system state. How many of us are running in a chronic sympathetic state? I'm currently listening to the book Rushing Woman Syndrome. It's amazing. It's everyone. Um, it's if you I haven't need to listened read to that, it, it's so good. I'm listening to it on Audible. It's fantastic, and I'm I'm already planning. I know I need to listen to it maybe three more times and take notes. That's how good it is. But this isn't an issue. That's just me as a new entrepreneur. Like this is everybody. We are all rushing women and we are not eating. How many of us are eating on the go when they're picking up the kids in the carpool line or whatever that looks like. I'm not a mom. So I'm eating in front of my computer. I'm distracted on Instagram. I'm like, Oh, I got to eat this and then run to this appointment. So we are not sitting in a parasympathetic state and laughing with friends and eating a meal and just focusing on our meal. So that's an amazing step that anyone can take to absorb more nutrients, reduce the bloating after meals and digest your food better. So we also need to chew our food. We don't chew enough either. So we want to chew between 20 and 30 times per bite. And if you start counting this, you'll probably chew maybe like four or five times and swallow and be like, oh my gosh, can I get that back? I need a redo. That happened to me yeah. so many times. Oh, <laughs> right? And yeah. And the cool thing about chewing, in addition to it really, really improving your digestion, is that the muscles, the chewing muscles and the chewing action actually starts to impact the, uh, the vagus nerve. So it starts to like trigger it to function, which will turn on our parasympathetic state. So the chewing helps with the parasympathetic. We can do breath work before our meal. We can, um, there's a little spot in your ear, like right above where you would put the earbud and you can just do gentle circles in your ear with this. And that sort of activates the parasympathetic. It, um, stimulates the vagus nerve. You can look to the side all the way, um, until you feel like your body starts to relax or yawn. I could do it immediately when I look to the side and I already feel that yawn coming on, which is, which is good. So all of these things, I know it's weird. It's just kind of a crash course, stimulate the vagus nerve before you eat. We want to chew our food 30 times a bite. We want to mix the food with saliva because it, there's digestive enzymes in there. We want to mix it with our food, especially things that break down starch. So if you're someone who doesn't digest starches very well, it could be because of your poor chewing. So the other thing that we want to do when we think about digestion is we probably need to support our digestion in different ways. So maybe perhaps you've heard of ox bile. And that's something that can help initially. But if you do have a gallbladder, you don't want to take ox bile long-term because it can actually reduce your body's production of, of bile. So there's other supplements to take. And I would really recommend working with a practitioner on this, but when that's sort of even jumping ahead. And when I look at digestion, I like to look at every single organ in succession because digestion is a North to South process. And every step up north is going to affect every step down south. So if you start with your, your head getting in parasympathetic, then we chew, that's our mouth, and then it gets to our stomach. And we need to have adequate stomach acid, stress, nutrient deficiencies, age, and not eating enough protein. So a history, again, of a vegan diet will all decrease the amount of stomach acid that you're producing. Also a ton of people, myself included have H pylori, and that is a bacteria that causes stomach ulcers, but it also reduces your stomach acid. So, so many of us have no stomach acid, and that is really going to be important for digesting protein because stomach acid not only disinfects the stomach and gets rid of pathogens, which is really important, but it also activates this enzyme called pepsin, which can't be active at rest or else it would digest us because we're made of proteins and it's a, a protein digesting enzyme. So the stomach acid, sufficient stomach acid is needed to activate this pepsin to break down protein. I see a lot of times people saying like, I just don't have a taste for meat anymore. Like I just am not in the mood for it. Or after I eat, a big meal, it sits like a rock in my stomach or I burping, bloating, even hiccups within an hour of eating. Those are classic signs of low stomach acid. Also black and tarry stools, undigested food in your stools, having um, diarrhea right after your meal, chronic constipation. Honestly, with digestive issues, it can kind of go eat either way. So di 
you know, digestion, uh, sorry, diarrhea or constipation, but all of these things are, and then that, that bloating within an hour of eating. So this upper stomach distension sort of right after you eat, these are all signs of low stomach acid. So there's lots of ways to support your body making more stomach acid. We need the nutrients. We also, um, anemia is another sign of low stomach acid, because if you don't have enough acid, you can't digest your minerals very well. So then we want to support the stomach to produce the acid. If you don't have enough stomach acid, your pancreas is not going to produce all those enzymes. So we are going to see some of those issues there of undigested food. And then the bile has to be secreted as well in order to emulsify those fats. And that's how we break down our food properly. We have all those things happening. We have the stomach acid, we have the pancreatic enzymes, we have the bile, and that should break down our food really, really well by the time it gets to the small intestine where it's all supposed to be absorbed. And so we think small intestine, we think absorption, but if any of those things didn't happen right, right? So we talked about what if we don't have enough stomach acid, then we don't get enough enzymes. We don't get enough bile. So these things are happening in succession. Now, when the food gets to the small intestine, it's not fully digested. It might have bacteria or pathogens or things like that in it because it wasn't fully you know, sanitized by the, or disinfected by the stomach acid. And we have these chunks of food that are, the body doesn't perceive these as like, oh, we just need to keep breaking down more. It's like, oh my God, what the heck is this piece of chicken doing here? This is an invader. And it's shaving down those cilia in the small intestine. So we're getting reduced surface area for absorption. It's causing leaky gut because this is these undigested proteins are going to wreak havoc on the lining of the small intestine. The intestine starts to open up and then all this undigested food starts to pass through. And that's where we get leaky gut. So a lot of people are talking about heal the gut, heal the gut. If you don't start with digestion, you'll never heal your gut. And so that's really, really important. And then finally we make it to the large intestine and the large intestine is where people are talking about, they go, Oh, my digestion is fine. I take a probiotic and you might hear this too. And it's like, well, that's the last chain in in the digestion. You, you miss everything that happened above it. So if you want to have a better bacterial balance, there's different types of dysbiosis, which means an imbalance of the good and bad bacteria. Some is caused by inflammation from maybe different microbes. Some is caused by not having enough of the good guys. But oftentimes what I see with my clients is they have a digestive dysbiosis. So if there's chronically low stomach acid, if they don't have good bile function, if they're eating in a, you know, a sympathetic state, they're not chewing well, they get this predictable dysbiosis in the gut of this overgrowth of these certain bacteria. And so just by improving the steps above, you can actually improve the bacterial balance in your large intestine, which is, I think, amazing. So those are the issues that I see with digestion. It was kind of like a crash course. I, I get carried away when I talk about digestion. <laughs> it was like a digestion it, 101 mastery course. Go. Yeah. <laughs> gosh, I'm listening to you. I'm like, this is brilliant. Like, of course, this all makes so much sense. And the problem is though, people don't want to do that work. And it's wild. Like just digesting is work for people. They're like, I'd rather go buy a probiotic, which is mm-hmm. not even doing the same thing, but right. it is crazy. I think maybe... Everyone just needs to get rushing woman syndrome book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's well, step one. I mean, that, a that I learned in like, nutritional therapy school, all that stuff. And I was like, oh. how come I didn't learn this before now? And that's why wow. digestion is module number two in my blood sugar mastery course. Everyone's like, lady, I came here for blood sugar problems. Why are we mm-hmm. talking about my gallbladder? And it's really, really important. And even people, you know, a lot of people don't have their gallbladder and want to eat a ketogenic or higher fat diet or embrace fats or just eat fat without having to run to the bathroom. You know, anyone's, you know, God-given right. And they, they struggle. And so with them, you know, ox bile replacement is necessary and doctors oh. don't, don't tell people that. So it's, working with a practitioner to help support each of these areas is so, so profound and it's so helpful. And I mean, one easy thing to try is apple cider vinegar before a meal, because that, that I feel like my whole life should be sponsored by apple cider vinegar because it has three (laughs) amazing benefits that (laughs) I talk about all the time. It lowers the blood sugar response of a meal. It increases stomach acid and it helps with secrete bile flow. So I mean, it's and all it of those amazing. things. 
It's actually not bad if you put it in a little bit of water with a sprinkle of cinnamon. So if you hate the taste, the cinnamon really, really helps. It like tricks the nose into thinking it's like, oh, it kind of smells like apple pie. Even I was able to disguise it and give some to my wife. She's like, oh, that actually wasn't bad. She's like, don't come near me with the apple cider vinegar. Like last time. I like it. I I like the taste. And it definitely gets easier the more you do it. It's just the first time you got to be ready for a little shock. It's an acquired taste. Yeah. 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 If you can get used to drinking like skunked beer when you're a teenager or drinking, you know, like straight alcohol, you can get used to apple cider. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Your palate will adapt for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Something you said that was interesting. So you talk about, you know, your, if your gallbladder's out, you need to do this. You said your tonsils were taken out, you know, the impacts of that. So something that our dad as a biological dentist has shared with us is when patients lose their teeth, the major impact obviously on so many health issues because they can no longer digest their food. So it's like, every time you take something out of the body, there's going to be a side effect that you need to be ready for and know how to face. Mm -hmm. So so that's so interesting. That's a PSA to take care of your dental health because if you can't chew your food until yeah. you know your yeah. last day on this earth, yeah, um, you're gonna have a lot of issues. And and fat soluble vitamins are especially helpful for your oral health, right? So you know the work of Weston A. Price. He talks about all the fat soluble vitamins and Factor X and all that, which is vitamin K two, I believe. And so if you can't digest your fats very well. This is what I see all the time. You will not only have digestive issues, but you'll also probably have blood sugar issues because you can't stabilize your blood sugar if you can't digest fats and you'll be deficient in those fat soluble nutrients. So you'll probably have dental issues. So that's another reason why we want to optimize our fat digestion and eat adequate fats for our body because we want all those nutrients. Yeah. 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 Vegans have some of the worst teeth. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was a video chemistry. Yeah. There was a video that, you know, one of those, you know, carnivore influencers posted maybe like Sean Baker or something. And it was this vegan and he was doing, he was talking and, and it's sad because I, I I know where they're coming from. I know they just want to help animals, most of them. Right. But, and he was talking about like, don't eat animals. And literally a tooth shot out of his mouth <gasps> during the video. And I was like, I, I guess like it freaked me no. out. Yeah. It was crazy. Oh my gosh. But, Real. I know. Yeah. Oh. But I feel like what's missing, what we know that, and this is sort of taking a turn, but I have a feeling you guys will agree with me on this. It's like, I feel like what a lot of vegans are wanting is this like beautiful utopia of like a cow walking around in a pasture and chickens running around and this beautiful biodiversity and great soil that we can grow our food and, and all different variety of pollinators and birds and, and plant life. And that is only achievable when we have regenerative agriculture and what the, the plant-based agenda is pushing, what there's like a trillion dollar agenda behind it as well it's really into this like monocropping and we're stripping the soil of its nutrients and nothing can grow except for the corn that's there. And, you know, that it requires like dozens of, you know, tons and tons of this petroleum based fertilizers. It's like, I don't think that's what they want either, but they just don't know how to get, you know, like, I think we all are wanting the same thing. We want the health of the earth. And I think, you know, regenerative agriculture is so, so important as really like the way in. So if you are listening and you're like, how can I eat better quality meat? You want to look for the term regenerative and you want like small family farms, because that's where you're really going to be doing the best for the animals and for the earth and for your body. I'm a big pro person. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wild pastures, regenerative pastures. Those are great companies. Force of nature, uh, nose to tail. So there's a a bunch of them coming out and, you know, I want to support these, these companies that are really doing it the right way. And the meat, the taste is just, (laughs) it's incomparable. So it's, it's great. Uncomparable. I don't, (laughs) it tastes like real meat. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. For sure. Danny, we're at the end of our time. We want to ask you one final question. If you could give our audience one final piece of advice, something they can do today to start optimizing, whether that's blood sugar, metabolic health, anything in in the wellness realm, or it could just be total off random advice you want to share. Oh God, just to pick one. 
I would say if you haven't already gotten a CGM, get yourself a CGM because it is, I think the most helpful information you can get about your health. And it really helps you customize things to yourself. So there's no amount of macro counting that would ever tell you what's happening on a CGM because there's so many other factors tied into that. So how you slept, if you had coffee, if you moved around, if you were stressed, if you worked out, like all of these things are going to impact how things impact your blood sugar. And I think that to see it in real time will just give you so much more information than anything else will. So I think it's probably the best investment in terms of a piece of wearable technology you could get. Yes. 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 A million times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Can you tell our audience where they can find more of you? Yeah, sure. So I hang out a lot on Instagram. My handle is Danielle Hamilton health. My website's DanielleHamiltonHealth.com. And my podcast is unlock the sugar shackles. And you guys are on my podcast today. (laughs) Yes. Podcast swap. Awesome. Well, this is so much fun. I love this topic so much and you are a wealth of information. Thank you for hanging out with us and sharing so much. Really a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.